Welcome to Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Uh, Today we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 3, and I was listening to Bob's Sunday School, and again, I was amazed how they dovetail together with the theme of baptism and how that came up. So today, we're going to be looking at Christ baptism, and I want you to remember that last week we looked at one day how Jesus would baptize all believers in the Holy Spirit. Well, today I'm going to be answering this question, why was Jesus baptized? And what we're going to learn today is that Christ was baptized in order to identify with us so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Oops, I forgot to start my timer, so I know how long to go. And so I want you to think about the good news is that not only were you and I identified with Christ the moment we believed, which is symbolized by our baptism, but Christ was baptized to identify with us so that you and I will be assured that one day we will enter into glory. Now, as we begin today in Matthew 3, 13 through 15, we see that Jesus will be baptized in order to fulfill what God requires. Matthew 3, 13 through 15, he recorded this. He said, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time... For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, then he permitted him. Now I want you to notice, dear ones, right in the beginning here in verse 14, that Matthew tells us Jesus had traveled from Galilee to the Jordan some 70 miles. So that would be quite a trip. And I want you to think about how that shows us the motivation that Christ had in order to be baptized. He was willing to walk 70 miles on foot, even in foreign territory, to be baptized at this time. Now, I also want you to see in verse 14, notice John tried to prevent him. John says, hey, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And I think that that's really the issue that a lot of Christians have. We can't conceive of why Jesus, the sinless one, is being baptized by here, the man who's the sinner. We don't understand that. And so I think as we unpack this passage today, As we look at the evidence, I think you'll see why. Now, I want you to look at verse 14. Also, I want you to think about, oh, I'm sorry, we already looked at verse 14. Verse 15, we start to get some answers. And that's where we're going to start to find answers as to why it is that Jesus was baptized. But before I do that, I want you to remember that even in our own baptism, you and I are not justified by baptism itself, but by faith alone. And so I want to bring it back for just a moment. Before we start talking about Christ's baptism, let's think about ours for just a moment. You and I as fallen sinners were justified the moment we believed. And the baptism is a picture of that salvation that we have. Is that clear? It's a picture. It's not salvation itself. So think of this analogy. Think if someone wanted to know something about my family and I broke out a picture They would not think that my family is a picture. They would know that that is a picture of my family. In the same way, baptism does not save. It is a picture of the salvation that you had the moment you trusted upon Jesus Christ. So right there we can see that, yes, baptism isn't really what removes sin anyway. So we should wipe that away from this idea that Jesus needed his sins removed. In baptism, there are three primary symbols that all come together. The first symbol in baptism is found in Acts 22.16, where it says that they were to wash away their sins in baptism. So baptism symbolizes the washing away of sins. When did that happen? The moment you believed. Again, that's Acts 22.16. It symbolizes the washing away of our sins. The second thing that baptism symbolizes is the regeneration of By the Holy Spirit, remember God said he would pour out his spirit? Well, in the spirit, he would wash us clean, give us a new heart, which enables us to believe and obey. That's found in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. So again, that occurred the moment we believed, but baptism symbolizes that. The third thing that baptism symbolizes is death to the old, and as we come up out of the waters, the resurrection to the newness of life. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. 
Now, of those three symbols, all of them come together because of our identity in Jesus Christ. And that is the primary issue with baptism. Baptism is about identity. The one you are baptized with is of extreme importance because baptism is about identity. So think about it again. John's baptizing, preaching repentance, and the irony is he is baptizing the only one in the world who never needed the remission of sins. So again, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Well, again, we come to verse 15. We start to see clues. Notice it says, Jesus was answering and said, permitted at this time. Now, the term time there, hearty in the Greek, means now. Jesus is saying now it's okay for him to be baptized. The implication is later, as we learned last week, Jesus will be doing the baptism. He will be baptizing believers in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. But now, notice he says, it is fitting. Notice the term fitting, by the way, prepo there means that which is morally proper. In fact, it's used of that which is morally proper regarding the conduct of the saints in Ephesians 5.3. So Jesus says now it is morally fitting or proper in order to what? To fulfill all righteousness. Now, as we proceed in Matthew chapter 5, really all the way to the end of the book, you're going to see this idea of fulfilling righteousness. And I'm going to explain the basic gloss of that, as one scholar said, is to do that which God requires. So the question is, then why does Jesus have to be baptized? Is there some verse in the Old Testament that predicted that the Messiah, when he came, would in fact be baptized? No. And so what I think we're going to find is that, yes, Jesus has to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, but it's righteousness for us, not a righteousness for himself. And so we're going to find that he has to identify with us so that he can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, I want you to think about how Matthew has already depicted Jesus as the faithful son that Israel never was. Remember, Israel had gone through a baptism. They went into the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness after that, but they were not faithful. Well, Matthew depicts Jesus as the faithful son they never were. We're going to unpack that as we go today. So in Matthew 2.15, remember, Matthew records Jesus as he comes out of Egypt. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. Never forget that verse. If there was ever a refrigerator magnet verse, that's one of them. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Wait a minute, I thought that applied to Israel. Well, initially it did. But the ultimate son with which Israel was pregnant was the Messiah. They fail, he succeeds. They were in there for 40 years, he's for 40 days in the wilderness. He succeeds where they failed, he's the faithful son. And so he's baptized to identify with us. Why? Because we're with him. And that's the only way any of us are ever going to be saved. Think of it this way. Your baptism is about you being with Christ and all the things that are true the moment you believe. But his baptism predates yours, and it's about him being with you. That's exceedingly significant indeed. Now, as we proceed in verses 16 through 17, we're given some major clues about the significance of Jesus' baptism. Notice it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, the first thing I want to do is verse 16 I want to talk about this evidence of immersion or submersion, that Jesus was under the water. I want you to first notice here where it says Jesus came up. That's anabino. Anabino is this idea of coming, but in an upward direction. In fact, the same verb is used at Jesus' ascension in Acts 2.34. Now, couple that with the preposition apo. He was coming up out from the water. I think the implication is that he was immersed or submerged. Okay, now why is that important? Is this a big debate I'm launching between sprinkling and immersion? No, that's not my point. 
But the reason I think the immersion is important is one of the great symbols, as I mentioned earlier in baptism, is death to the old and resurrection to the new. That one thing the people of God have always held in common is that throughout history, I'm talking about salvific history, is the people of God in the waters of baptism are deluged from the old world and into the new. Think about Noah and his family. They were eight of them. And according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, they had a type of baptism. They were baptized through the floodwaters. In the floodwaters, they are deluged into a new world so that even if they wanted to go back to the old world, they could not. They couldn't go back. In the same way, fast forward to around the year 1445 B.C., Israel is baptized, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, in Moses and in the Red Sea. And even if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they could not. Why? Because the waters closed in. There was no going back to Egypt. And so as Christ identifies with the people of God who are deluged into the new world, we find that in him, you and I are heading to a new world. That in Christ, there's no going back. That's one of the images that's present here. And that's why I think immersion is so powerful. Not that it does something, but that it symbolizes something. That in, through faith in Jesus Christ, because you're with him and he is with you, you're going to a new world. There's no going back. Now, I want you to see here in these underlines, we're going to look at some terrific evidence of the Trinity here. Notice it says that he saw, and I think this is John the Baptist here, that he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Does everyone see that in the underline? Now, the first thing I want you to see is that the Spirit is coming from heaven. Notice he's descending. There's katabino. Jesus was ascending from the waters, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is descending from heaven. Okay, now, why is that important? Because we're seeing distinctions within the Trinity. Second person's coming up out of the water. Second person, the Trinity. Third person, the Trinity, is ascending. It's also interesting to note that with the Holy Spirit, you have the third person, the Trinity, who is seen but not heard. The first person, the Trinity, the Father, is heard but not seen. But Jesus in his ministry is both seen and heard. Next thing, it's important. Notice the Holy Spirit was descending as a dove. Now, this is a simile, Jose. It doesn't mean that he is a dove. It means it was like a dove. Now, why a dove? Well, perhaps because in the creation imagery from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 8, you had the Spirit hovering over the waters like a bird. In fact, in Genesis 8, a dove is specifically used by Noah. Okay, so perhaps that's why. We're not sure. But it's like a dove. And notice it says that it was lighting on him. I don't like that rendering that well. The the literal Greek is that he came upon him. Now, why is it significant that it says that he came upon him, the Holy Spirit? That's because the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be the one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. When we use our term Messiah or Christ, we're using the term anointed one. Well, what is he anointed with? It's not just water, as in baptism, but it's with the Spirit. And so I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I want to start showing you some of these anointing passages. We'll look at two of them. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Please turn your Bibles there where you see the Messiah would be anointed with the Spirit. Now, as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, remember, this is a significant passage. Isaiah 11, 1 is all about the Messiah clearly because it's talking about this shoot that comes from Jesse. That's Isaiah 11, 1. Well, who's the shoot of Jesse? It means there's a man that's coming from David. Jesse was David's father. So it's a fancy way of saying that there's going to be a man who comes from the lineage of David. Hold that for just a minute. That's Isaiah 11.1. When you get to Isaiah 11.10, whoever this man is who comes from David, he's not just the shoot of David, he's the root of David. 
He's the source of David. Well, how can you be a descendant of David and the root of David, the source of David at the same time and in the same relationship? Well, the God-man. Truly God, truly man. That's who this Messiah is. So we know this passage is about the Messiah. Notice Isaiah 11 too. It says, The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Does everyone see at the beginning of that passage, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him? You don't have to turn to this next one, but jot it down if you're a note taker. Isaiah 61.1. Isaiah 61.1 says the same thing. And by the way, this was the passage that was allotted to Jesus to read when he comes to his hometown synagogue. That is Isaiah 61.1. You can read about that in Luke chapter 4. Remember, Jesus read this passage. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. The Messiah would be the first one to give, as it were, the gospel in the new covenant. And he was anointed by the Spirit. So yes, we see that this is, in fact, the Messiah who is to be anointed. Now, in verse 17, we have the first person of the Trinity affirming who this is. Notice the voice is out of the heavens. It says, this is my beloved son. That phrase that you see in blue is very significant because it really is a blending of two verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 2-7, where the Lord says, he says, I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Okay, so that's Psalm 2-7 that we see whoever Jesus is as the Messiah, he's God's son. That's who he is. But notice that's blended with this phrase, in whom I'm well pleased. That's from Isaiah 42-1, where the Lord talked about his suffering servant and who his soul delighted. It's really almost the same phrase that's used here. Now, let me just say this for just a brief moment, Isaiah 42.1 is significant because it shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the one who's going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So here clearly, the Heavenly Father is affirming that this is his son. Again, dear ones, this is a great Trinitarian passage. And we have to remember this because you will come across in your life people like Oneness Pentecostals, Oneness Pentecostals follow a heresy called modalistic monarchianism. Monarch is the king. Mode means he just changes costumes. So what they believe is not one God in three persons, but one God in one person who just changes costumes. Sometimes he has the father's costume on. Sometimes he has the son's costume on. And sometimes he has the Holy Spirit's costume on. That's disproven by this verse. You have the second person, the Trinity, coming up out of water. Third person of the Trinity is descending from heaven like a dove. And a voice from the Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved Son. You have subject-object distinctions between the members of the Trinity. This Bible shows us that, yes, there is one God in three persons. And to say that there is only one God in one person who changes costumes is a lie. It's, it's just not true. Now, to me, the coup de grace in this whole passage is very significant, I think, is notice the Heavenly Father not only declares this is his beloved Son, but he says, in whom I'm well pleased. The term well pleased there, eudokeo, is a term that's very significant. God here is affirming this is the faithful Son that is well pleasing to him. And we should see in this, I think, a cross-reference to what Israel was not. Israel, as we will find out, was not well-pleasing. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 2. Now, why is this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 so important? Well, first let me explain how Paul is using it. Paul was upset with the Corinthians because they thought, hey, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, we're in like Flynn. And our idolatry and our unbelief and all these things that are wrong with us, they don't matter. What Paul shows is that, hey, Israel had a form of baptism in the Red Sea into Moses. 
They had a form of the Lord's Supper. They ate spiritual food in the wilderness as God provided for them. They had a form of the Lord's Supper. They had a form of baptism, yet they fell in the wilderness. Why? Because of their idolatry, because of their unbelief. So the warning is, hey, just because you have baptism, just because you have the Lord's Supper, doesn't mean you're in like Flint. No, without faith, you're going to perish as well. That's the idea. But notice the significance of this baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, it says, And all, talking about Israel, were baptized into Moses. Stop there. Later in our message, I'm going to labor the point, who were they identified with? Were they identified with Christ? No, with Moses. It was into Moses. This shows us baptism is about identity. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Stop there. They had baptism, and they had the Lord's Supper. But they fell in the wilderness. Why? Because of their idolatry. What were the Corinthians doing? They were eating at the Lord's Supper, but also the table of demons. And Paul's basically saying, you think it's going to go well with you? They had the same things you did, but they fell. But notice, here's the point. Notice verse 5. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, again, Israel, God was not well pleased. There's the, new, the negation of udokeo. I'm sorry, <laughs> got tongue-tied there. Udokeo. Wow, that's a tough one. It's a negation of the same term that's used here. With God's son, he's well pleased. With Israel, he was not well pleased. They failed in 40 years. Jesus is going to succeed in 40 days. He's the faithful son. Therefore, if he's the faithful son, he has to identify with us. Brothers and sisters, the great news is that Jesus Christ took it upon himself to identify with the people of God so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That through his substitutionary death, we could have atonement. And through his righteous life, we could have the very righteousness of God clothed to our account. Brothers and sisters, why was Jesus baptized? I think it's clear when you unpack all of the data, he had to identify with us. So let me lead you to that then. Two points that I want us to consider this morning. Number one, baptism is primarily about identity. And I'll be proving that to you. Those baptized belong to Christ and are dead to the old world and are alive to the new. Okay, so what is baptism about? It's about identity. Number two, Jesus, as the only true faithful son, identifies with his people in baptism in order to lead them on a new exodus. That's what he's doing with us. He's leading us on the final exodus. We're going to the promised land. Why? Because we're not with Moses. We're with Christ. And we're going to go to the promised land. Now, two things I want to prove then to show you baptism is about identity in Christ identifying with us. We have to prove two things. Number one, baptism is primarily about identity. Number two, Jesus is depicted as the faithful son that no one else is. So both need to be proven. Okay, so let's begin with this idea of about baptism being primarily about identity. That's my contention. What is baptism about? It's about identity. It's about who you're with. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you're with him. Baptism symbolizes that. So Jesus, therefore, I'm claiming, is baptized in order to be identified with us. So let's begin in Acts chapter 19, verses 3 through 5. Here the apostle Paul, he is at Ephesus, and he is preaching here, and he's showing the significance of being not united in John the Baptist's baptism, but by being baptized into Christ. Notice he says, And he said to him, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, those in Ephesus, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want everyone to see here in the blue these prepositions into, into, in, in, in. All of the prepositions here are ace, which can be rendered in or into with the accusative. 
So why is that important? Because what's being shown to us is that Paul was concerned that, yes, they were identified with John. They were into his baptism, but they needed to be identified in Jesus. And that's why they end up being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just hit something because I'm sure it'll come into your minds. It has mine. Matthew chapter 28. Remember, we're given the Great Commission. We're to baptize all nations in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, is there a contradiction between that and baptizing someone in the name of Jesus? No, because we have one God. Yes, we have three persons, but if you're with Christ, you're with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to faith in Christ. And if you're with Christ, you're with the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you're with Christ, you're with the other members of the Trinity. And if you're with the other members of the Trinity, you're with Christ. That's the idea. So clearly, baptism is about identity. How many times have you heard in your life, in the business world, it's not what you know, but it's who you're with? Or maybe sometimes they'll say, it's, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, that's the way it is in salvation. It's not how good we are. Salvation is about who we are with. In baptism, it symbolizes that we're with Christ. And if Christ was baptized first, it means that he's with us. How significant is that? It's very significant. Let me show you another one. Here in 1 Corinthians 1, recall that Paul was upset with the Corinthians because they were boasting, not in Christ, but in various teachers. There were divisions among them. Some said they were of Apollos. Some said that they were Paul. Some said that they were of Peter. And so what you'll see here in this passage is Paul appeals to their baptism as the final proof of the one that they were identified with, which is Christ. So why go through all the rigmarole of dividing over the various teachers when you're in Christ? So listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 13. Paul said, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, remember that's Peter, and I of Christ. Notice verse 13, he asks a rhetorical question. Has Christ been divided? What's the obvious answer? No. Notice another rhetorical question. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? What's the answer? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Ultimately, dear brothers and sisters, we don't identify with any given teacher, whether it be John MacArthur or Eric Dahmer, R.C. Sproul, Bob, anybody. We're identified with Christ. And all the other teachers, and as important as the apostles were, yes, they were men who spoke the very words of Christ. But they're speaking the words of Christ, not their own words. And so, again, we see here that, yes, baptism is about identity. Let me show you another one. This is Acts 10.48. Here, Peter was preaching the gospel at Caesarea. Gentiles believed. They were given the Spirit. And listen to what he said to them. Acts 10.48, it says, And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So notice, where were they baptized into? They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They were identified with him. Now, again, what do we have in baptism? Remember the three symbols, washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. Regeneration by the Spirit, Titus 3, 5. Death to the old, raised to the newness of life, Romans 6, 1 through 4. But all three of those symbols are true because the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you're with him. Baptism is about identity. That's what it's about. All the symbols find their fulfillment because you are linked to Jesus Christ. Let me show you this again. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've already set the setting for you, what Paul was concerned about here. Again, what did he say to the Corinthians regarding the Israelites? He said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Brothers and sisters, notice here 
They weren't baptized into Christ. They were baptized into Moses. Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, he was the spokesman for God. And they were identified with him. That's the idea. Nonetheless, what happened to them? They fell in the wilderness because they didn't believe. But here, clearly, Paul is saying that they were baptized in a way. And they were identified with Moses. So Jesus Christ baptized, was baptized in order to identify with us. And so now we can understand why Jesus said to John the Baptist, let it be for now to fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus identifies with us. He can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Are, are you and I righteous in the end of ourselves? No. Is Christ? Yes. He has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's why baptism and identity is so important to understand. Now, it would be one thing if you and I were identified with a mere sinner, but I want you to see that you and I are identified with the faithful son. In fact, the only one who's ever been faithful in all that he did throughout all history, that Jesus Christ was tempted as we are in all things, yet with what? Without sin. He's the sinless one. So notice we have here that in Exodus 4.22, I want to build this case that he is the faithful son that none of us could be. Remember in Exodus 4.22, this is what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. And you're going to see that for a time, Israel was God's son. He said, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So Israel is declared the firstborn. Now, why is that important that Israel is God's firstborn son? Because remember, among all the people of the world, they were unique. They were given the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs, the very scriptures of God. And yet, how did they fare? Were they perfectly sinless? No, they were not. Even though they had all those benefits, but do you see, because they were given all of those benefits, the imagery is us Gentiles are going to fare far. We're, going to, we're not going to fare as well as they did. It's going to be even worse. We weren't given the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs. So if the greater Israelites failed, the lesser Gentiles certainly will. So even though they're called the son of God, what happens is they fail in the wilderness. Well, here, Matthew 2.15, notice here, Matthew links Jesus to being the faithful son. Matthew 2.15, it says, he imagined, excuse me, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, here's Hosea 11.1. 1. Here's your refrigerator magnet verse. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, originally, Hosea 11.1 1 was all about Israel. Wasn't it Israel that was brought out of Egypt? Well, now Matthew is showing us, ultimately, it's fulfilled in Christ. If you lost Israel in Egypt, with whom was Israel pregnant? Messiah. Messiah comes from Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And of that tribe, he comes from the family of David. If you lose Israel in Egypt, you've lost the son. So one thing Matthew is showing us is that God was faithful to protect the son. But as we're going to find out, Jesus is also depicted as the faithful son Israel never was. This is why you're going to see that refrain where he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You're going to see that same thing again in the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus is glorified before them, the voice from heaven comes again. Matthew 17, 5, the voice from heaven will say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the faithful son that Israel never was. And Matthew certainly wants us to see that. So what I want to show you is this parallel between Israel and Jesus' life. Certainly, Matthew intends for us to see this parallel and then even the ensuing contrast, Israel unfaithful, Jesus faithful. Okay, so let's begin. They were both called out of Egypt. Israel was called out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. But so was Jesus. He was called out of Egypt as well. 
He had the same exodus motif going on in his life. Okay, that's Matthew 2.15. Both Israel and Jesus were baptized. We learned that today, 1 Corinthians 10. The Israelites were baptized into Moses. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized to identify with us as I'm laying out. All right, so both were baptized. Both went into the wilderness temptation. Exodus 13, Jesus and Matthew chapter 4. Both end up going to the very mountain of God. Israel went to Mount Sinai. Jesus goes to the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is the one who reestablishes the mountain of God where the truth is given. So I want you to think about how Matthew was crafting this. Matthew 2, think about it, it's in order. Matthew 2, called out of Egypt. Matthew 3, he's baptized. Matthew chapter 4, wilderness temptation. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the mountain of God. So clearly, Matthew wants us to see Jesus as recapitulating the life of Israel. But the big difference is where they fell in the wilderness in 40 years. Jesus succeeded in 40 days. That's what we're going to learn the next time we're in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, therefore, is the faithful son. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He's the faithful son that no one else could be. If the greater Israelites, the promises, the covenants, the patriarchs, the scriptures, if they couldn't do it, we're not going to be able to do any better as Gentiles. So therefore, because Israel failed, we all failed, Jesus doesn't. And so throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew is therefore depicting Jesus as the substitute because he can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. For example, Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, just as the Son of Man, referring to himself, Daniel 7, he's the Messiah, as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Does everyone see that preposition there for the, the term in Greek, I think, is anti. It means just on behalf of. You could render it that way. There's the idea of substitute. Christ will do for us on our behalf what we can't do for ourselves. He will pay the debt. And again, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. That's what Jesus does. So, of course, he has to identify with us. Praise be to God that God himself would condescend to become a man so that he could live the perfect life that you and I could not and that he would die this substitutionary death so that we could have atonement from sin, the forgiveness of sin. This is why Jesus had to identify with us. He is the faithful son that no other human being could be. Now, let me talk about this historical overview. I'm talking about salvation history with baptism. I want you to kind of conceptually think of it this way with baptism. Think of Genesis 6 through 9. You have Noah and his family. There was eight of them. And again, they were deluged in the ark, in the floodwaters, from the old world into the new. And even if they wanted to go back, they could not. Why? The floodwaters wiped away the old world. It was washed away. So there was no going back for them. Now, fast forward to the year 1445 B.C. We learn today, 1 Corinthians 10, Israel was baptized. They were in the Red Sea into Moses. And even if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they could not. It was washed away. The, the waters closed in. And they couldn't go back to Egypt. Now, the problem there is Israel, of course, went into the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land, but they fail. They fell in the wilderness. With them, God was not well pleased. That's what Paul said. So lo and behold, the promised Messiah who comes from Israel comes on the scene. In Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized. He's baptized to identify with us. Because in Christ, he is now going to bring us on this new exodus, the people of God. He is going to be the Passover lamb. He's the one who's going to be slain. You and I will be baptized because we believe we will go into the wilderness and on into the promised land. 
So you and I then, because we trust in Jesus Christ, we're with him, and therefore we're baptized, which symbolizes I'm with Christ. I have the washing away of sins, regeneration by the Spirit. I'm dead to the old. I have resurrection to the newness of life. Why? Because I'm with Christ. That's what it's all about. So do you see in salvation history, the big picture I want you to see, if Noah and his family, the righteous ones, were baptized, if Israel was baptized, do you see how it's fitting that Christ would be? Because he's identifying with the people of God. In history, the people of God are deluged out of the old world into the new. He's identifying with the people of God. Certainly that's how it's being depicted. Brothers and sisters, this is exciting. It's great enough to say, yes, I'm identified with Christ, but to find that he first identified with you? Well, praise be to God. He saves us by his grace and his power, not by what we do. So I want to talk about how this can apply to all of us at the end here. I want to talk about our exodus that we have with Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want to remind you is that, again, you and I are not saved by baptism Baptism is a picture of the salvation that we have by faith alone. It is by faith alone that you and I are justified, declared righteous before God forevermore. Do you remember that when Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. The term credited there, legitimai in the Septuagint, it's also used in Romans 4, talks about God crediting us with something that's foreign to us crediting us with a righteousness that is not our own. Paul picks up on Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 4 and says that salvation has always been by faith alone. The moment you believed, you were declared righteous before God forevermore. Now, I want you to see this in the book of Galatians. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 3.24. Galatians 3.24. Please turn your Bibles there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. And one of the reasons I want you to turn to Galatians 3, 24 is I want you to see how we're saved by faith alone again. And then three verses later, baptism is mentioned. Yes, faith comes first and then baptism. Galatians 3, 24. Notice Paul said, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now just stop there for a moment. Notice the term tutor. The term in Greek there, pedagogos, is a term that we have, pedagogy. In the original context, the, pedagog- the pedagogos was sometimes a stern man or maybe a woman. I don't know if they used women or not. But it was someone who was in charge of the children while, the, while they were growing up in a wealthy family. And they would make sure that these kids were taken care of for the family. And so the idea is that this pedagogos functions like that until... Christ comes. That's the law. The law functions to be like a steward until Christ. So notice when Christ comes, notice the purpose of the the law. It was so that we may be justified by faith. Does everyone see that we're justified by faith? The moment you believed, you're declared righteous before God forevermore. That's it. That's how you're saved. Now, three verses later, what does Paul say about baptism? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Notice, first of all, we were justified by faith, Galatians 3.24, then we're baptized, Galatians 3.27. Now, again, I'm not claiming Paul's trying to show us an order salutus here, but that's the way it works. You can't get those reversed. You don't get baptized first, and then you come to saving faith, as I'm going to show you in my diagram. Saving faith is what justifies you, not baptism. But I want you to see how important this imagery of baptism is. To be baptized in Christ symbolizes that we are clothed with him. Think about that imagery of being clothed with him. How many, when you were high school students, maybe you lettered in a sport, if you're a man or or a woman for that matter, but it's more helpful if you think about the man lettering. Because remember, sometimes a boy in high school would take his letter jacket and he would put it upon his girlfriend. She was clothed in his letter jacket. What did that mean? She identified with him. Brothers and sisters, you and I have Christ's letter jacket on. And he is the greatest 
of them all. We're with him. We're with him. So brothers and sisters, do you see then you with your Passover lamb are on the final exodus. And I want to talk about this because I know many of you, as I've admitted myself, have gone through a lot of difficulties the last couple of years. It's been difficult on the congregation, our nation, the world. It's been tough times. So you and I, when we see that we're on this final exodus, it'll put it in perspective. Think about Israel. What did they begin with? They began with the Passover lamb. Do you remember in Exodus 12, when were they to select the lamb that was to be without blemish? It was on the 10th day of Nisan. What day did Jesus Christ come riding into Jerusalem? 10th day of Nisan. He was saying, here I am, I'm your lamb. But they didn't want the lamb who would remove their sins. As John said in John 1, 29, remember John the Baptist? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They didn't want that, the vast majority of Israel. They wanted someone to kick out the Romans. So they missed it. What day were they to slay the lamb in Exodus? Well, they were to do it on the 14th day of Nisan. What day was Jesus Christ crucified? The 14th day of Nisan. Showing you he is the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about what did they do in Israel? They applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home so that when God's wrath was poured out, they would be passed over. Hence the term Passover. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you are applying the blood of the ultimate lamb to the doorpost of your life and God will pass you over the wrath of God. It's a Passover. That's what it's all about. Then what happened to Israel after their Passover lamb? Well, they were baptized in the Red Sea. We learned that today. They had a baptism, didn't they? Well, you know what? You and I were baptized too. Why? Because we're with Christ. So again, let's not get these backwards as some of the Reformed traditions do. Baptize people before they have faith in the Lamb? Does the Lamb come first or does it baptism? It's the Lamb. If you don't have the Lamb, you're not passed over. So then you're baptized. And what happened after their baptism? Well, they went into the wilderness. And dear brothers and sisters, that's exactly where you and I are. We're in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness walking it out as we head towards what? The promised land. That's where we're going, brothers and sisters. Think about it this way. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18. We'll start there. Hebrews 3.18. I want you to see that the writer of Hebrews understood it this way. And he gives a warning about those who fell in the wilderness because of unbelief. And he applies it to us. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 3.18. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18. Again, the writer of Hebrews is applying that first Exodus event to us, how they fell in the wilderness. Notice he says, Hebrews 3, verse 18, He says, and to whom did he, that's God, swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Okay, so stop there. He's saying you won't enter into the promised land. Why? Because you're disobedient. That's what he said to the Israelites in the wilderness. But why were they disobedient? Notice verse 19. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's why they didn't enter into the promised land. They didn't believe. They had the Passover lamb in vain. Yes, they had the lamb provided, but they didn't trust in the lamb. Brothers and sisters, you and I are in the wilderness. That's why life isn't so good. Not even the United States. It's falling apart, isn't it? Because we're in the wilderness. So what's the word of Hebrews to us? Notice he says, therefore, notice chapter 4, verse 1. By the way, the chapter breaks were added centuries later. This is an area where they shouldn't have had a chapter break. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, that is the promised land, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Brothers and sisters, things are difficult. You're in the wilderness, but you're heading towards the promised land. What are you to do? You're to keep believing the promises of God. 
That's what Bob Dewey has been teaching this congregation for 30-some years. Believe the promises of God. Because if we do not believe that we're heading to the promised land with our Messiah, you and I will say, you know, it was pretty good back in Egypt. I'm going back. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, there was no going back. That's what baptism symbolizes. You were deluged out of that old world. And the great news for you today is not only are you trusting in Christ, but he's holding firmly on to you. Remember, he's the one who says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, you are heading to the promised land, and it is assured that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will get there, because not only were you identified with Jesus Christ in baptism, but before you were ever born, Jesus Christ was baptized to identify with you. Christ is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the powerful imagery of baptism, that it symbolizes what is true of us by faith alone in your Son alone. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that in the difficulties of this age, as we live in the wilderness, that you would enable us to persevere onto the promised land. That we'd be those who would have the gospel upon our lips and in our hearts. That we would set our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. I pray, Heavenly Father, for this upcoming funeral, that we would give great honor to Jim's life, but more importantly, even the great honor and glory to who you are, Lord, who saved him. I pray that there, if there are any who are at the funeral who don't know you, that that day would be their day to trust in Jesus. I pray also in the weeks and months ahead, as long as we have this side of glory, that you'd give us the opportunities and the boldness to preach your gospel so that others may be saved, that others may be identified with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.